Welcome to another episode of No Challenges Remaining, live on location in the media parking lot <laughs> section of the golf course that the Cincinnati Western and Southern Open turns into a parking lot. I'm Ben Rothenberg. Sitting in the passenger seat of my Chevy Malibu is my dear friend Courtney Nguyen. I feel like that's like, you know, a pretty good statement of our friendship generally. Yeah, I think that's yeah, about right. I'm, yeah, I'm sitting shotgun in your your Chevy Malibu. I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. So we are waiting for traffic to clear out. There's actually a lot of traffic going very slowly, and we were sitting here. We are going to report the podcast when we got back to our hotel, but we're like, you know what? We're here. Ben and I are all about efficiency, Yeah. and we don't let a minute go by without being productive. That's exactly how anyone would describe us. Exactly. And so after about a 15-minute dance party in the middle of the the parking lot as we blasted music in the car, we decided to actually get back to work. There was some Tegan and Sarah. There might have been. We were good lesbians. It was awesome. Yeah. High five. High five. Indeed. So, on this episode, we're going to talk about what happened in Canada last week, namely the Montreal men and Toronto women. They're going to talk about what's happened so far in Cincinnati and our arrival here to beautiful Mason for the fourth year in a row for both of us, which is a lot of Mason. It is a lot of Mason. And I was thinking about it actually today that because somebody, I think I was sending out some kind of snarky tweets about Mason in Cincinnati. And I think people were getting mad at me being like, hey, don't be ripping on Mason. And I was like, no, but the Cincinnati tournament, Indian Wells and Rome are the three tournaments at which I have gone to like the last four years. Yeah. In a row, uninterrupted, never skipped. I've, I've skipped the Aussie, I've skipped Wimbledon, I've skipped US Open, yeah. I've skipped Miami, I've, you know, never gone up to Canada. Like, you know, I don't go to all the tournaments all the time, but those three are, are always on my schedule, and, and I genuinely adore the Cincinnati tournament and all of its quirks, and I think that that's a lot of it. There are a lot of quirks here, namely the uh, situation we're in right now, basically, <laughs> where it's about 11, coming up on 11 o'clock at night, and we are sitting waiting to go eat at Applebee's, yeah. essentially. Dying to eat at Applebee's. Dying to eat at Applebee's. Ben with... hasn't eaten all day. I have not. No, I have, they have some press room bananas, which are pretty good. I get a lot of potassium. I get my actual annual potassium dosage during this one week of the year. I have doctor friends who tell me that that works. <laughs> so I think I think that'll be okay. You need to check their credentials. Yeah, well, you know. They, uh, yeah, so it's, it's a good week here. I mean, it's a, it's a town that if you were just driving through it, you would never think that this would be a place that would have to deal with with having a bunch of European tennis players ascend on it, and vice versa. This is not a place that European tennis players should ever have to brace with, and other parts of the world, too. But Europe is really dominant culture on the tour now, and so it's interesting seeing how those two communities deal with each other in both directions. Yep. What, what the locals make of the foreigners, what the foreigners make of the locals. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, you know, I mean, to be frank, I mean, talking to quite a few of the players over the last few years, I mean, I don't think that they come here and think, yay, I'm coming to Mason, Ohio. No. You know, it is it is a very quiet town. There isn't anything to do, really. Nothing. Like we said, we go to Applebee's and a, a few other chain restaurants, you know, to get our sustenance, and that's our it's, evening. It's not really a pretty place. There's not like It's not like Indian Wells or in the middle of nowhere, but it's scenic. There's nothing right. scenic about Mason, per se. But the what the players across the board do say, for the most part, is that the facilities are incredible. Incredible. And, and I, I agree on that end. I mean, in terms of the media center, it's yeah. great. And walking around the grounds, it's nice and tight. It's not too spread out to where you feel like you're going to take, like, 10 minutes to walk from point A to point B. Not at all. Great player access 
access on the on the practice courts, which the locals here who come to the tournament really do love. I mean, I think I've seen, you know, some people kind of cap on what looks like the poor attendance numbers. But when you actually walk around the grounds, it's pretty, I mean, for a Monday, it was quite busy, and the weekend qualifying was pretty... The stadium's going to look empty during day because people are around the on, grounds. Yeah, everybody's yeah. around the grounds. Everybody's kind of enjoying the grounds, and they really do love their practice courts Absolutely. There. So it's been a good few days so far, mm-hmm. and hopefully it will keep being good. On the on the basic culture shock front, so we sort of talked about that. What are, what are some of your Mason anecdotes from things you've seen on either the either the local side or, or the player side? I know that we were watching um, the news last night. One of the things that is kind of interesting is... and, and Well, interesting is not the right word, but we were watching the local news last night, and they were obviously talking a lot about the tournament. They're very the enthusiastic little, about yeah, it. Yeah, very enthusiastic talking about the tournament and just kind of pimping it out, and, and it actually got a lot of talk even before the PGA golf result, yeah, which was a major a result. Yeah, before a major result, uh, golf result, they were telling us about Petra Martique mm-hmm. and Julian Benetois. Benetois. Julian Benetois. Okay, he was once Julian Benetois, and then he was the other time Julian Beneteau. Yes. They always got half of it, right? They did, they did. But, you know, I mean, the, what is... Re- and, and you do hear kind of the same things when you walk around the grounds. There's a lot of kind of mispronunciation here and there, or kind of confusion about stats or who pl- certain players are, like you know, and things, you know, but they're so enthusiastic. And that's what's really kind of really quite nice about it is that there isn't, when you walk around the grounds here, at least what I feel is is kind of mingling amongst the fans. There's no kind of cynicism. No. You know, that that really does plague, I mean, definitely plagues my own way that I enjoy tennis, but also exists in a lot of the kind of like, like, I guess what we would consider tennis hotbeds. Traditional tournaments. Back when it was going on, we talked about Queen's Club, for example. And I think this place is the polar opposite of Queen's exactly. Club. Exactly. And Queen's that's Club, a good Queen, thing. Yeah, it's totally a good thing. <laughs> Queen's Club is like where like the aristocracy goes to see and be seen and watch the, the gallant peasants fight amongst them for their own amusement. Here they're like just so into it for all the players. I mean, you, there's huge crowds for Djokovic for all players. for all players. I mean, yeah. one of my my favorite things about Cincinnati, and it always has been over the four years that I've come, is the love for Yelena Yankovic at this tournament. They do okay. like her a lot. So I saw like this one guy who was walking around, big kind of like strapping Midwestern like white guy wearing a t-shirt that said Yelena Yankovic's number one fan. And it was self-made t-shirt and it was signed with her because I saw her little signature that had a little heart and stuff. And he was just walking around like no big deal. Then later today, like I saw JJ as the, there's kind of this corridor right outside the player entrance. An autographed gauntlet kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, exactly, where fans can kind of line up and the players come in and out. You know, Sharapova walks by. Obviously, she's going to practice, so she's not going to sign. I mean, these are kind of general things that we know kind of in- internally, but she's not going to sign. The fans don't always know that. Yeah, fans don't always know that, but but they're not going to sign kind of going away, going to someplace, but they might, like, sign after they're doing whatever they're doing. Right. So, but Sharapova blasts by. Radvanska blasts by. Sloan walks by. No signature, not a single one. Yelena Yankovic rolls up, hops out of the car, walks to the players literally signs every single autograph and like goes back like if she passes a point but she hears somebody go Elena 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 which is what they yelled uh, she goes back and signs with a big old smile on her face and I love that I think that's so great so point, kudos to you Elena um, and kudos to you, Mason. Like, kudos to you, Mason, yeah. It's yeah. a cool play. And it's a regional tournament. It's not just Cincinnati or suburban <laughs> Cincinnati because we are, as we should point out once again, we are 20 miles outside Cincinnati. Right. We, I've spent, like, in my four years coming here, I spent a grand total of, like, 20 minutes in, in Cincinnati city proper 
during that time. And Cincy's great. And Cincinnati's a, it's cool, a great, it's a nice city. It's a great city. I mean, I've, I've actually spent time in there, and, and it's quite cool. And, and some of the players will, you know, if they can, go to Cincinnati for dinner or something like that early hike. in the tournament. But, yeah, it's a hike. It's, it's you know, an hour-round trip driving. You know, but that's kind of the flavor of Mason. But I, I always really encourage people to come. You know, if, if you can't go to Indian Wells, you know. If you live anywhere in the Midwest. This is the tournament to go to. If it's within, like, a, you know, eight-hour driving radius, like, hop in your car and come because... It's a relatively inexpensive tournament. Tickets are not overly priced. No. You get great access. Good seats for cheap prices. I mean, mm-hmm. I if people live somewhere in between, even like in Washington. But it is further to Cincinnati than it is to New York. But if people like have the options and don't really care about wanting to see a Grand Slam, it doesn't like your be all end all. Which a lot of people probably hype that up and they want to be at a Grand Slam, which fine. But it's just so much more user friendly here and so much more of a pleasant tennis experience. So, I agree. I love yeah, it. It's very cool. Place that we're heading next, we should probably talk about a little bit the Mason Applebee's. Mm-hmm. Sort of our, it's a bit of our like, I don't know what the term for it is. It's our cheers. It's our cheers on the tour, on the annual tour. It's like our one like place we talk about year round. Mm-hmm. We sort of bonded there mm-hmm. when we first like we got did. to know each other. We did. Like three years ago. Exactly. So, yeah. So. yeah. No, the Mason Applebee's is is when you mentioned before, kind of like instances of culture clash. I think I always personally just think of the Mason Applebee's. The yeah. idea that you know the very first time I think to when I went to the Mason Applebee's and like you're sitting there and like. You're seeing these European players like come in, like a Pekovic, a Yankovic, Grigor Dimitrov shoveling like a, a ice cream sundae as he's like watching ESPN. Yep. Uh, Leander Pays. I mean, everybody's kind of in there in the same way that you would go to like a fancy restaurant in Indian Wells. They're all at the Mason Applebee's, right? And that's where I'm always kind of like, what that's must... where the culture tra- exactly. Is. Like, what must they think of like the Applebee's fajitas that have barbecue sauce on them? <laughs> right. Like, no, because it's it's true, and the and the staff there is the same way. I mean, the, I had one very chatty which was my first <laughs> night there and she was telling me that oh you know all these Europeans they come in and they order water with gas and I was like, I was like we don't have that <laughs> and so like every time like, I gotta tell my manager you gotta order the Perrier because they're, they're coming to they're coming here they want the water with gas and they like so they cope with it they're like this is our big week of the year this is ATP week because really not a lot of other circuits roll through Mason right. and, except for the tennis so and the players the waitress also did go, go on to ask if I um, a, a few players were sitting near me like uh, several different tables of players they left and uh, she asked me did the players read your articles and I was like uh, sometimes I'm not sure I can't I don't know who reads what and they're like well, she's like well in the next one can you tell them how much we tip in America because four percent is not okay <laughs> and so I mean that's the sort of and the Europeans obviously don't tip on American standards and uh, there's no right or wrong it's just culture no it's, it's just, it's just, just culture. total different culture and so you know I'm sure that Mason to most European players feels like the most foreign stop on the American, North American tour. It's such an outlier on the tour in general. I mean, even if you go down to, like, all the slams, the Masters 1000s, and the 500s, like, really, there isn't, like, a less global or, like, less resorty city than Mason. Everywhere else is kind of a destination. This one, I mean, it's amazing that it survived, and it's sort of cool that the players kind of have to come here and have to be have to dip into Middle America because it is a it is a world culture here. It's not a very uh, kind of an isolated insular culture in some ways, but it's it's a place. It is no, so I like it. I don't mind it. I I apologize if it make, if I ever sound like I'm like ripping on it. It's just I love it here. You know, it's fun. No, it's cool. It's a fun week of the year for it sure. Is. Yeah, yeah. I always look forward to it. So we've now left the parking lot. We have a lot more to talk about here in the great indoors. Courtney, it was a big week for a country with a whole lot of outdoor space, namely the second biggest country in the world, namely our neighbor to the north, namelier Canada. 
Canada had its best week of tennis ever, arguably. First time they'd ever had a guy into the finals of their home tournament, the Rogers Cup. First time they'd ever had two semifinalists there, all-Canadian semifinal in their big tournament. And then the guy who won that all-Canadian semifinal, Milos Raonic, got to be the first ever Canadian guy in the singles top ten. So what did you make of the big old week for the Canadians, eh? Yeah, I mean, you know, on the whole, I mean, I think it was great. I think that, you know, it's good for Canadian tennis. And what was nice was to see the enthusiasm. I know that Ernest Golbus didn't love the enthusiasm. Nope. and Probably Tomas Berdik did not love the enthusiasm not or so anyone who played either Milos or Vashik. Even uh, somebody who played, you know, Dancevic might have had not so great a time. Or Polanski. Right. You know, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, that wasn't great, but um, it was just nice to see, you know, a crowd, a tennis crowd that get that kind of into tennis. And, and what's also, I guess it's weird for me to say this because I do at the same time get annoyed with like French fan, the way the French kind of fandoms are, but in terms of how negative they can be and how they can turn on a dime, you know, and be negative towards any and all players except for Roger Federer. Uh But it really felt like the Canadian fans were enjoying tennis in the way that a Canadian would and, and really kind of interacting with the sport in a way that Canadians would, which is like to be rowdy and to be loud and I'll, to cheer double faults. And, and I'm okay with that, I suppose. I will tell you that the men in Montreal were playing in front of a French-Canadian crowd in Montreal. So that's, probably, that's maybe where the double faulting uh, cheering came from mm-hmm. genetically for them or culturally, <laughs> however you want to put it. The Quebecois are different people that are culturally unique and important group, I believe, in the Canadian Constitution. That's why they have to announce the score as, you know, count a deuce, like both. Yes. It's very Canadian. So yeah, it was fun for them. It's a good week for Canadian tennis, having an all-Canadian semi. And we were saying while we were watching it, though, that it's really lucky for tennis world that the all-Canadian semi happened to happen in Canada. Yes. Because if this had randomly been, like, a Rome semifinal or something, we'd have been like, what is this? It would be. I mean, you would, you would kind of... The storylines would have been more, I mean, I would think, and or maybe not, because, I don't know, maybe the global tennis media is, is wouldn't be as sexist about it, but that you would kind of have more of the articles of, like, what the hell happened at this Masters tournament right. that, you know, two Canadians, you know, made the semis of Vashik Pospisil, who's a wild card into Canada, you know, even Raonic, who slumped and really took advantage of a kind of blown open draw and an injured Del Potro yeah. uh, and, and got the backing of the Canadian crowd against Gold. I mean, you know, he did... Raonic... Was Raonic impressive to you? Sometimes. Past week? He had moments. Against who? Against Del Potro. He had moments. Even though Del Potro wasn't at full strength, he had moments. And against Golbus, he had moments. Mm. He had moments where he really dictated with his forehand. It was aggressive from the back of the court. He won points and weren't on his serve. It still looked dominant. and looked like a player who is in the top ten now. And it's not as... I mean, I don't think it's the strongest top 10 entry we've ever had from a person based on his last 52 weeks, which really weren't all that great. I mean, except for this week, this was his one big charge. Before that, he lost early in Washington to Marinko Matosovic. I believe he lost at Wimbledon. He lost early, like, second round at Wimbledon. He lost early at the French. He lost early in Halle. He lost early in all these tournaments. He had been picking he up bad. Out. Yeah, he'd be, the thing that was surprising about Raonic's 2013 is that I think he had really made... Uh, what impressed me about him over the course of the last like two three years was his ability to win matches he's supposed to win yeah and yes he would come up against a top tenner or a top 15 guy and maybe it'd be competitive or he would lose but you know he was getting regularly into the fourth round yeah you know quarterfinals 
that sort of thing. Living up to his seating. Exactly. But that wasn't really happening in 2013 after San Jose. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. after that, he was really starting to pick up early bad losses. You know, he's playing much more tentatively. Obviously, he split with Gallo Blanco, his longtime coach. Now he's working with Ivan Lubacic. And he really stalled in the rankings when he really had an opportunity to kind of move, make a move. Yeah. I mean, really couldn't crack that top 14 barrier, it seems like. And so, you know, in that way, and, and, and you know, in that way, it was, it was nice to see him kind of take advantage of a broken draw and, and, and to really win the matches he's supposed to win. So, you know, I mean, he's, he's now the youngest member of the top 10, first Canadian in the history of the ATP rankings to, to be in the top 10. It's good for, for Canadian tennis to the extent that, you know, because I kind of feel like Canada is kind of in the same boat as the, the States in a way in terms of like their best athletes probably play other sports. They play hockey. They're going to play hockey, right? And in the States, I mean, they're going to play anything other than tennis. Canada's worst athletes are the world's best curlers. <laughs> there you go. So they, they've bracketed that pretty <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, they're going to play hockey. And, and so to, to have Raonic out there and, and to kind of be, you know, big, strong guy, well-spoken, smart guy who plays a type of tennis that I think is accessible Totally. Two Canadians. It's exciting uh, tennis. It's good. I mean, I mean, as much as people people like Ronich, like Isner, like Karlovich, even are not fan favorites to watch always. If they're your guy, there's something satisfying about seeing your guy boom ace after ace after ace and hit exactly. forehand winners, and that's that's fine. If you, if you're really a partisan for him and. He's delighted the crowd in Davis Cup when they had their first two wins. But a lot of people will say, oh, Canada's success this week was foreshadowed by them making the semifinals of Davis Cup before that. I kind of think that that was a bit of a fluky run. I mean, Italy is a soft quarterfinal opponent right now, and they got a really weak Spain team they beat. I mean, obviously still it was Rodich beating players who were ranked below him that he was supposed to. Still did it on home soil on a very fast court. But yeah, I think that was a little bit of a outlier. What do you make? We'll talk Rodich a little bit later about one of his specific matches. We'll, yeah, technically, well, no, hypothetically, we'll, nah. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm going with I that. I see what you did there. It wasn't great. But what do you make about the other Canadian semifinalists this week? Vashik Pospisil, a.k.a. Anything is Pospisil, a.k.a. Vashi Pops. Vashi Pops! The number five, like, boy band member of the ATP. Who are the other four, quickly? Harrison. Yeah. Goffin. Yeah. Uh, Dimitrov. Dimitrov. And I feel like... Did we put Tomic in there? <laughs> Nishikori. Nishikori. Yeah, right. Nishikori. Good yeah. But yeah, so Vashi Pops. Uh, it was great. I mean, it was so cool to actually see him do well. I think that he's a player that I've seen... I've watched his matches quite a bit, yeah. and I've always kind of tracked him, especially after his kind of beast mode run through Davis Cup, what was it, two years ago? Um, Israel, yeah. Yeah, in Israel, yeah. And he had a big win at, in Montreal two years ago also. Exactly. So Chela, I think, when he was, like, way outside top 100. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, he's just kind of a nice guy from British Columbia who, you know, is, is kind of... What I liked about him was kind of the contrast that he really put forth for Canadian tennis because Raonic is kind of... You know, even though I think most of us know that he's kind of a seething guy underneath, not in a negative way, but he's very, you know, he's he's had to work hard to control his temper yeah. in matches, and he's done that quite well, but he's kind of flipped the needle the other way to be almost u- uber calm, so as, like, the Montreal crowd is, like, getting rowdy and loud and stuff, like, he, Raonic looks completely nonplussed. Until he wins, then it all explodes. Until he wins. It's very Djokovic-y in that way. Maybe, but Djokovic, he's a little bit, he reacts to the crowd, and you see it. Raonic never reacts to the crowd. Yeah on court. But Pospisil is kind of the flip, where he was, you know, 
fist pumping. I mean, he was fist pumping double faults from oh, yeah. Burdick. He was, you know, come oning every single point. The crowd was loving it. They were getting into it. Big smile, you know, rosy cheeked guy, little kid, kind of baby faced. I mean, he just came in from playing in the snow, you know, exactly. out on the backyard pond, eh? You and your hockey. Like oh, Canadianism, but yes, no. So, so it was really good to see Pospisil have that run. And what was so great about it is, while Raonic kind of took advantage, in my opinion, of a very soft kind of draw, Pospisil was a giant slayer. Beat Isner in the first round, Stepanek in the second round, Burdick in the third. Davidenko gave, gave him the walkover, and then came within points of beating Raonic. I mean, yeah. seven, what was it, seven four in the tiebreak in the third set against Raonic. I mean. Pospisil hadn't made it, I think, past the second round of a ATP Masters, maybe second or third round, but he had never made it that far. Yeah. So for him to kind of come off a very good win for him at the Vancouver Challenger the week before, take that momentum in as a wild card, he was ranked like 71 coming into Rogers Cup and came out ranked 40. Number 40, um, a top 40 for Pospisil. Yeah, and if he does well here, he can, you know, he's got a chance at a seed. So you mentioned that he had a success in Vancouver where there was a lot of crowd for him. He is a British Columbia guy, and Canadians are partisan, patriotic people. Very proud of the Maple Leafs. And then he'd do well in Montreal. I'll be curious to see if he's opposite Stoser. I don't know if the term is somebody who really only plays well at home. and Because there's not that many Canadian tournaments. It's not like you can be a Isner and just make your points in America and then sort of coast. There's not enough opportunities in Canada to make that work. So it'll be interesting to see if he does anything. Because he'll get into a lot of tournaments. At number mm-hmm. 40, he'll get into like Bercy. He'll get into Shanghai. He'll be on a lot of lists he probably wasn't expecting to be on uh, two months ago. So it's a good good thing for him. Yeah, I mean, and and the other thing with, with Pospisil, Golbus kind of took a dig at him in his press conference where he kind of talked, when he was talking about the partisan crowd against Raonich, where he was like, you know, these Canadians, he's like, Raonich is a talented player and whatever, but, like, the Canadians play well in Canada and they don't play well anywhere else. And the crowd has a lot to do with it. And it was an it interesting kind of comment because... At first, when he said it, it seemed like a dig against Raonic. But then he was like, no, 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 Raonic is really good. We know he's talented. But And I think there was a moment in his press conference where he's like, I think you guys know who I'm talking about. But just kind of talking about the partisan nature of it and how it inspires the Canadians to do do quite well. So, yeah, I mean, it's a big test for Pos- Pospisil going forward. You know, he's kind of in a, I mean, he's in a great spot, and it's a great opportunity for him to, to build his ranking and to kind of make a name for himself. He's a nice kid. You there know, five I mean, Canadians in the second round of that tournament, I believe, mm-hmm. and that's incredible. So, yeah, the Patriotic thing is good, and I have no problem with the partisan crowds, really. I say saying a match has a Davis Cup atmosphere, quote-unquote, is, you know, just means the crowd was involved, and that's yeah. totally better than the opposite. Although I will say this, I don't want to hear from any more Canadian fans any critique about American jingoism after what I saw this weekend, or last weekend at Rogers Cup. Fair. Can't do it. Everybody's going to vote for the flag, root for the flag, and they're going to be obnoxious about it, and they're going to be just, you know, they're going to rub you the wrong way, but they're rooting for the flag, and that that's what's going to happen in Britain for Annie Murray, in France for the French, and Roger Federer, you know, and, and that's just how it is. And, and that energy is needed in tennis, honestly. That yeah, crowd energy totally. is needed. So go nuts. Be inappropriate. I'm totally okay with it now. Have a ball, yo. Yeah. One moment that was maybe not as bright and shining for Canadian tennis during the Rogers Cup week in Montreal happened in Milos Raonic's third round match against Juan Martin Del Potra, who was fresh off of victory in Washington, but also was coming in with some back problems, was doubtful to play, as in fairness to the rest of the world, as Del Potro often is coming in not 100%, so you take that with a bit of a grain of salt sometimes. But he was uh, leading by a break in the second set, up 4-3, deuce. 
when what happened, Courtney? 4-3, deuce. Raonic had control of the point, and Del Potro sent back kind of a scrambling, lunging backhand that landed... Very short. Very short, very close to the net. And Raonic charged in, he hit a winner to, to put away. In the open court. In the open court, but in doing so, his foot slipped as he tried to slow down, and it hit the net. And in the umpire's chair was the legendary Mohamed Leani, who, let's face it, has had a bit of an off year, aside from the fact that he chaired the Wimbledon men's final. But he's had a few slip-ups this year that have been a bit surprising. But he missed. He missed the call. Yeah. He blew the call. And he, he admitted it to which Del Potro. Is, which is weird because during the replays, it really looked like he was, saw it. Yeah. That's the thing. His eyes were pointed at Ronich. But the problem... what? But he can't look at both the ball and Ronich at the same time. So the argument is, which you can see easily on replays of it that mm-hmm. it hadn't happened, but had the ball bounced twice, was the point dead when Ronich skidded after he made the shot into the net. And I do think it's a bit of a silly rule sometimes, honestly, the touching the net thing. Mm-hmm. If people want to run, it was not like if that became legal, people would slowly start molesting the net. I, I think it would be not change the game much. It's just one of those old rules of tennis that is still a rule, and you got to follow it. Yeah, I mean, I go back and forth on it when I was thinking about it because there were people who were kind of emailing me or in blog comments saying, you know, it's, it's a stupid rule, it's antiquated, but, you know, what does it matter? He put the ball away, it was his point, it was a winner. But... You know, there is something to be said about kind of, you can't just run full bore to put a, a shot away and then run into the net. Like, there, there is the whole point of, like, you can't run full speed unless you can stop before the net. You touch the net. You they know do what I mean? protect the equipment. I mean, they don't want people running into the net. No, I mean, it's not even about the equipment. Them. I mean, if you're going to just say, like, you can't touch the net, like, that's where the logic is right. in that. And Ronich was trying to stop. Ronich was trying slipped. to stop and he, he slipped. Clearly slipped. Yeah, he slipped and so he, he clearly touched slipped the net. and touched the net. And you could tell from his face he knew he touched the net. Mm-hmm. But the crowd cheered because he knocked the ball into the open court. Commentators on both Tennis Channel and on Tennis TV it was Brett Haber and Lindsay Davenport on Tennis Channel, and it was uh, Robbie Koenig on Tennis TV. And they both were like, oh, he touched the net. He touched the net. And that was, oh, oh lose the point. And then wait for the crowd to sort of die down, see what the ruling will be. Leoni gave the point to Ronich, mm-hmm. not not penalizing him for touching the net, not calling that point against him, letting it go. And Del Potro was not happy, complained about it for a while, said, and they and actually there was a bit of an intrigue because some video official at the site in Montreal put the replay of the incident on the jumbotrons in the arena there, so Del Potro could see clearly what happened. And then Leoni saw what happened too, and was like, "Sorry, I didn't see it live. I can't make the call based on the replay. They shouldn't have shown the replay. <clears throat> Nothing I can do. I made a mistake." And Del Potro was fairly like, "Well, you make a mistake, and I lose the point. <laughs> like that's not okay." And which I thought was you know true. And Ronich didn't say anything. Ronich just sort of let it go, waited at the back of the court, sort of pacing around, ready to get the next point going. And after Del Potro stopped complaining, he lost the next eight points in a row, I believe. And the match totally went away from him, and it was over. Lost his break advantage, got broken at love, and it was over. And afterwards, Milos Ronich was asked if someone said, oh, it should have been Del Potro's point. And he famously said, Courtney. Hypothetically, yes. Technically, no. Which is such a wonderful quote that is actually inscribed on our first ever No Challenges Remaining t-shirt at our wonderful new store, which you can visit at nochallengesremaining.spreadshirt.com. And it comes in men's and women's sizes and in a hoodie. That's our plug for today. Let's get to the actual meat of what happened, though, Courtney. What did you make of this whole incident and how Ronich handled it? 
I think that I was more surprised as to just how Raonic handled it after the fact. Yeah. I think that he was in a position where if I were him, and even if I knew, I touched the net, I'm super lucky nobody saw it, I didn't cop to it because it was a big point, you know, basically what he said after the match. Yeah. Even if I believed that, if I went into press, honestly... I would say, like, you know, I didn't feel like I needed to own up to it because the umpire said that the ball was dead. Yeah. I touched the net, but the ball, and I didn't feel like I should concede the point because to me, based on what, how I felt and how I felt that saw the match, I hit a clean winner. The fact that Del Potro was nowhere near getting that ball and back. And to be yeah. fair, Del Potro never saw the net touch until the replay. If you mm. look at the video... Del Pocho's just running to the his left on the court and had his head down when Raonic touches the net because yeah. it was a clean winner. So I was kind of expecting Raonic to say that in press, which is that it's the umpire's ruling. The umpire said the ball was dead before I touched the net. So, or at least that's what my understanding was, that not that the umpire didn't see that I touched the net, right. but the umpire ruled that the ball was dead. So what am I conceding? For- that would have been actually a legitimate response. But for then for him to come back and say, you know, I was lucky nobody saw it. It was such a big point. Like, would you have conceded? That is where that was it was a character. That's where the character kind of came in, you know, where it was like, oh, so you did, you knew you touched the net. You knew that you probably should have conceded the point. Like, in you're your head. You're just happy you got away with it. But you're happy off. you got away with it yeah. because it was such a big point on a big stage. That is where the problem is for Roundage. I mean, people crushed him for this. Yeah. I mean, like Lin- so. Lindsay Davenport was like, there's honor code in tennis, you gotta get that point away. And Brett Haver kept introducing it. Like, Lindsay, as a three time Grand Slam champion, would you ever do this? And she was like, no, I would not. And it was, and it was absolutely the honor code self refereeing that sometimes comes into tennis. And that is a big part of golf. It's another sport, for example, where there's this honor code involved and it's a gentleman's game. And you're supposed to do what's right and rules abutting at the expense sometimes of what's best for you results wise. And it very much conflicts. With, with hockey. Yeah. With hockey culture, which is, like, if you can get get away with something, you're going to try and get away with or it. Or soccer, for sure. Or soccer. Definitely soccer. So, in terms of, like, those you know, those two sports in particular, like, it, it but hockey being the pr- predominant sport in Canada. Sure. It's very much contradictory to what the hockey kind of ethos is, which is, you play hard, you go hard, it's up to the referees to call what they call. If they see it, they see it. If they don't, then you got away with something, and you're going to have you know, enforcers, and you're going to have, like, cheap fouls and things like that that you're going to try and get away with. So it was kind of like a weird, I don't know, it was a, I, th- I thought it was a weird moment for Raonic, because I really thought that he just wasn't that guy. I really didn't think that he was that guy. I've never seen any moments from like that before, and in Cincinnati, he was here, he had his press conference because he just made the top ten. He was sort of an, I was a little surprised he did a pre-tournament press, honestly, because he's not a top four guy, and not that big a name, but he did pre-tournament press, and I asked him about the whole incident, and here's what he said. Um, Milos, during your match against Del Potro, uh, you had the net touching incident on, on here in the States. Uh, Lindsay Davenport was commentating for Tennis Channel and was fairly harsh, saying that there should be you know, more of an honor code about with, among tennis players and they should admit to things even when the officials don't see them. I just wonder what your thoughts were. Uh, I, I, feel like, I, I feel like I made a mistake in that spur of the moment. Something... I guess because I hadn't been faced with it before, um, I just sort of, I'm disappointed with myself how I dealt with it, and it's something I've learned a lot from. I really didn't have the opportunity until really the last two days to think about it that much, um, and it's something that uh, I feel sorry about, and something I want to apologize to Juan when I see him here for, 
I don't think I dealt with that the right way, and I think it's something I probably should have in that situation, and in the future I would call on myself. So, Courtney, what did you make of Milos's apology? Yeah, I mean, it's good that he finally kind of, you know, kind of owned up to it and understood kind of the, the problems that it had. And everybody has, like, learning experiences, and everybody does, like, crappy crap when they're they're younger and they don't know. But, you know, it does taint you know, because it was such a big point. It was, Del Potro wins that, he's got game point to go to 5-3, but instead, it's Roundage wins it, he's got break point, and Del Potro's totally put off, and he loses whatever, nine straight points or whatever. So it was a major point for, yeah. for, for that, and so it does taint, in my opinion, his run to the Rogers Cup final. I don't think that on the broader scale, like personally, I don't think that Milos Roundage is a cheat. I don't think that he's a guy, a gamer. That's just not ever been my sense of him, and I don't think that that isolated incident really affects it that much. It was kind of one of those heat of the moment, I did something stupid. He's a young kid. I yeah. mean, he still he's, hasn't been on a tour because he's been injured a bunch, too, mm-hmm. during his short career. He hasn't really, this is like his second full year on tour, pretty much. I think, that, yeah, he deserves a little bit of slack for because he well, he had half a year and then two sure. other years. So, yeah, I think that he deserves some slack. I thought his apology today was very, just the way he was giving it was very contrite and believable. And even if it was, as some people are saying when I tweeted it, oh, it's too little, too late, it's, you know, not enough, it's just PR. I do think at least he came out and approached the thing head on, yeah. and that was that was admirable. Well, and to those who say too little, too late, I kind of respond with, like, better late than never. Totally. You know, I would rather him apologize five days later than to just continue to go on and toe the party line and just, just be like, I'm never wrong, and that's what I said, and that's how I feel, and so it's, it's the right move for him, and but it was just kind of a, an interesting incident because it was also, from what I saw within, like, four or five, six hours after the match, completely buried by Canadian press. Oh, yeah. Like, the, like it was shot. I mean, they, they didn't even get the incident right. Like, I think the Canadian Wire report that I kept seeing pop up on a bunch of different Canadian sites was that, like, oh, and then there was a dispute about Rownich touching the net with his hand. Yeah. And I was like, no. Not his hand. Not his hand. And actually, yeah, within tennis, it's kind of a big deal. But I cut the Canadian press slack because I understand that, like, there's kind of still kind of like the learning about sure. kind of what is significant, what isn't. But and it's interesting that we haven't mentioned this, but it's interesting in this And I role, mean the broader Canadian press, not like tennis press. I mean the sure. beat writers, they know what they're talking sure. about, like Tom. It's interesting that this rule came up. Uh, again, a few months after the French Open, where it was very pivotal, mm-hmm. when Djokovic was up a break in the fifth set and got lost his point, admitted it, or it wasn't, it was obvious, mm-hmm. and then Nadal, same as Del Potro, even more, was like pointing at it and like, look at that rule violation, even though again, clean winner, clean winner, D- Nadal was never gonna get to it, no, like it was, you know, and yeah, yeah, so that's it. I think that it's a learning experience for Ranch, and we'll remember it. But yeah, I agree with you totally. The better late than never thing, I totally buy because like Justin Annan who had the incident at the French Open where she held up her hand and then was asked and then denied it. Ronich never denied it. He was never asked by Leoni about what happened, whereas Enin was, denied it, and then um, years years later later. kind of acknowledged it. It wasn't her best moment. But but then said, like, but it was only because it was against Serena and I, like, was never going to beat her, honestly. So Justine owned her shit, but very late. Speaking of... Justine and that incident with her BFF Serena. Serena had a pretty good week in Toronto, winning her second straight title after Bostad by claiming the Rogers Cup ladies' crown in Toronto in pretty convincing fashion. She did not drop a set, I believe. Hasn't dropped a set since Wimbledon. She beat Serena Kirstea very, very easily in the final 
6260, which was followed later by later that day by a Rafael Nadal route of Milos Ranch. We'll get to Nadal and Djokovic after Serena, but just wanted to give the ladies some time finally on this show. Courtney, what did you make of Serena's run and the whole sort of women's week in Toronto? Which I think really was overshadowed by the men mostly. Yeah. And some interesting exo ways as well. Well, it's, it's, yeah, but I mean, it doesn't really help when you don't have Sharapova and Azarenka. Exactly. So, you know, it, it's like if Novak played Rogers Cup without Rafa or Andy. Yeah. You know, it it wouldn't have been that significant of a tournament either. So, you know, I think the Toronto tournament was obviously hit by the withdrawals quite a bit. But, I mean, to me, like, the story out of Toronto was, I mean, obviously Serena did what she did. She didn't have to play any of the big hitters that, that can typically uh, cause her problems. So, you know, there is kind of that minor, minor caveat. But... Augie gave her a tough match. Yeah, Augie gave her a tough match. But uh, I feel like the story for the women out of Toronto was Serena. I thought that she, you know, much kind of like what Pospisil did. I mean, she was she had a ridiculous run to the final. Her first final since 2008, I believe. Yeah which is huge, beat, you know, Kvitova, Wozniacki, Lina, Yankovic as well. So for those four wins, I mean, that's that's huge. Those are former number ones, you know, slam winners. So that was quite good. Ran out of, you know, gas or overmatched, depending on how you want to look at it. I see it as overmatched, obviously, Yeah. Uh, against totally. Serena. But what was nice to see from Kristea was that she'd played well in Stanford, and she'd played well in D.C., but she just kept getting too nervous and getting nipped nipped right at the, the quarterfinal or semifinal stage. So to see her kind of finally manage that and to play well was, was good. And, and obviously, she's a name that's always floated around over the past, like, you know, few years, and she's still young, just 23. If she can pull her game together, that'd be amazing. I mean, she, she's just one of the biggest hitters on the WTA Tour. So it was it was a nice week for her. I was, I was happy to see she's that She's a little happen. like Ivanovich. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, they look kind of alike, and she's... Her personality and her appeal, looks-wise, in some in some ways, have always overshadowed her actual tennis results in the last several years. I mean, she did have a good breakout at the French Open in 2009, I believe. She made the quarters there and lost to Stoser when the draw really opened up that year. Stoser made her sort of debut. Yeah, but this was really her first notable deep run of any sort at any tournament. You said the no final since 08. That's a long time to go without a final when you're a player who people talk about. So I think it's good for her. I think clearly the influence of Darren Cahill, who was rotated to her through the Adidas player program for these last few weeks, that clearly is huge. I mean, we talk about him being the big blue chip coach who all the players want, and she definitely benefited from that, even if she did wind up getting totally smoked by Serena in the end. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was, I mean, obviously Darren got a lot of a lot of credit for, you know, what Serena was able to do. I, I did kind of feel like there were moments during Toronto when he would come down and I suppose this was kind of, yeah, highlighted more so just because of the way that the commentators were like, look at, K-, and Twitter Twitter as well, like, Cahill's amazing, he's a great coach, and it's like, yeah, but there was something wrong about seeing him come down and having to tell the player, like, his advice was just focus. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, it's like, it wasn't tactical advice, it, it was a pep talk. Yeah. And that, I don't have, a, I don't really care about on-court coaching, I don't have a problem with it. I don't, I can, I'm fine if it's gone. I'm fine if it's there. It doesn't bother me. But at least if like, if it's a coaching timeout, like come down and coach, like a pep talk being a cheerleader, that's kind of pointless to me. That's when it doesn't look good. And even if a lot of coaching, even on like the professional level, like NFL coaches during halftime or other stuff, it's not always tactical. I think the, the optics of having 
this guy come out of the stands and tell this girl, like, oh, you know, just calm down and do your best. It's just, yeah. it's just doesn't, not a great look for WTA. I personally never thought that Encore Coach had add, added anything whatsoever, and I think it's just not necessary, and I like the sport more without it. I like it more at Grand Slams. No one ever complains at Grand Slams, like, oh, if only this person's coach could come out there. That doesn't happen. So I, I just don't like it. I'd be happy to see it gone. I don't know what the impetus would be to have it removed at this point. So I think it's kind of here to stay, at least for the short run, which is fine. But yeah, I think that her resurgence this week is and, the, and her getting to work with him, I don't think that's a coincidence, even if a lot of the influence he's giving her is probably not actually during matches. It's like on the practice court, just sure. being around with her during tournaments and, and keeping her head on straight. And he's worked with her for, for a while now. Yeah. So it's not like he was a miracle worker who popped in and was like, oh, yeah, like, you know, immediate results. I mean, they, they've they been working together for, I want to say, like, three years, maybe longer. So... That was Adidas a long time she has. Yeah, but but that, but, but those two specifically. So, so you know, that was... Yeah, it was good. While Serena won on the women's side, the men's winner was Rafael Nadal, who has improved to 11-0. and 0. Is that right? On mm-hmm. hard courts this on year? On hard courts, yeah. 11-0 on hard courts, uh, which is his worst surface that's apparently killing him. He's dominating it. So that's pretty good for him. It's not bad if you can get it. And to play two tournaments, big tournaments to win them both. He had a particularly impressive win in the semifinal. A very tight win over Novak Djokovic in a third set tiebreak. One of their faster matches. It was really pretty quick pace. And in the third set tiebreak, which is what it came down to, Nadal just really kind of blew Djokovic away and stepped up and Djokovic couldn't really respond and Nadal won that match and then won the final easily over Milos Ronic. And he's here this week in Cincinnati. We'll see if he plays or not. But he's here, playing to play the U.S. Open right now after a pretty bad Wimbledon where he lost first round and just looked kind of helpless, Courtney, after a big play season. What do you make of Rafa's week in Canada and what the rest of the year holds for him? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that, like, I was super either surprised or distraught about his Wimbledon loss. So... I was just more curious about when going into Montreal, just how he played. Like, you know, like how much time had he taken off? Was he match uh-huh. fit? Was he playing with the right tactics? And across the board, I mean, he, he passed with flying colors. I mean, not just Djokovic, but he had a tough one against Yanovitz as well. And he really stepped up. What was uh, heartening to me watching him through Montreal was he's playing the right way on hard courts. Yeah. He's playing aggressively. He's stepping in and there is a decisiveness in, with the, with respect to the way that he's kind of approaching his hardcore game, which is really, really good to see for him. So, you know, I mean, I don't, you know, for all the talk about hard courts, yes, I mean, obviously everybody knows that, that hard courts are harder on everyone's body, uh, not just Rafa's, but everyone's. And, you know, you'll ask anybody about it and, and they'll say that. So he looked awesome in, in Montreal, honestly. And what is particularly great, I suppose, if you're a Rafa fan, about his run was seeing how confidently he played against Novak. Yeah. I feel like that rivalry has flipped. You know, you had that kind of year and a half or so, year, year and a half, where Novak was really nipping Rafa all the time. and was killing him. And, <clears throat> yeah, and Rafa, absolutely. And Rafa clearly was not happy about it. I mean, you saw the, ev- the video of the evolution of the handshake where it starts off with Nadal winning and everything's pretty amicable, and then Nadal keeps losing over and over, and it's just he's clearly not happy, nor should he be about getting having someone get the best of him. And he seems to have now 
turn that around fairly well. Well, I mean, I think that the biggest thing is that when Novak was kind of going through that stretch of really dominating Rafa, what you saw was that in the tight moments, it was Novak who was stepping in and being aggressive and playing confidently. And it was Rafa who was really playing quite tentatively. And over the course of the last, especially, you know, since Rafa's comeback, whether, I mean, setting Monte Carlo aside, what you see with uh, Rafa and Novak over the course of the last few months, like whether it was the final of the French or here, is that Novak seems to be the one that gets tight in the pressure moments. Totally true. And Rafa's the one that seems to be able to step it up. You know, for Rafa to come back against Novak in in that final fifth set at the French, he really just tightened up his game and just, like, really took it to Novak, and same in Montreal. So, you know, that's an interesting one, and and one that really has to give Nadal a lot of confidence going into not just Cincinnati, but the U.S. Open, knowing that he can beat Novak. I think that he's mentally flipped that rivalry. So, you know, anytime those two guys play from now on, going forward, I kind of would tap uh, Nadal uh, until it flips the other way. So then the match I want to see now is Nadal and Murray. That's one that hasn't yeah. happened yet this year, and that'll be the hopefully that happens at some point Semis. in Cincinnati in semis or in New York. Yep, we'll see. Odds are they probably won't both make it to the Cincy semis this week. So just with New York coming up, and it's not a yeah. tournament they tend, or definitely not a tournament that Nadal particularly has tended to try to peak at. This Cincinnati. is a more important tournament for Andy than for sure. it is for Rafa. Definitely. So, yeah. Totally wouldn't be surprised if Nadal played a match or zero matches and then pulled out precautionarily. Well, but let me ask you this, Ben. Who is, as of right now, your U.S. Open favorite on the men's side? It's a good question. I think there's a great case that can be made for four of them. I really think Novak, and Novak is just so steady and will be in the conversation late. He's by far the least likely to flame out. Mm-hmm. Andy has been very reliable there, too. Sun well against Novak lately on hard courts. Rafa has been had the best year of anybody. And then Del Potro, I really think, has the game to beat any of the other three and nobody else does. So I think I think the big four in terms of favorites for me, unless Ra- unless Federer does something big in Cincinnati, like huge like kills the field, which I don't see happening. But even if he does, I mean my issue with Roger is not that his talent has diminished or whatever. I still think that he can play a, a good a match against anyone is you know at any time it's a consistency he can blow through the cincinnati field and defend his title doesn't mean that i think that he can put together seven matches over two weeks yeah in new york we'll see so let's talk about cincinnati a little bit the tournament itself so far how has it gone for you how has the media side been the tennis you've seen so far what has been the most memorable notable thing so far at the western and southern open yeah, I mean, I haven't seen too much actual live tennis. No. I mean, it, it's been a bit of a a working first three days of kind of running around, getting interviews, you know, and things like that. So so I'm looking forward to that starting probably, hopefully, tomorrow. But yeah, it's Cincy. It's it's good. No complaints. Any highlights? We had all-access hour today. Any particular highlights of that for you? Anything that someone said or just someone's demeanor or anything? Eh, not really. I mean, I, I really feel like kind of everybody at all-access hour today was kind of in business mode. Uh, there wasn't really a lot of free, free kind of flowing conversation. I think Sharapova was kind of over it. Azarenka was was kind of laughing and joking, but Azarenka I, was good today. I thought. Yeah, anyway. I, I didn't catch the whole the whole yeah. uh, roundtable, but um, I don't know. I mean, it hasn't it's, felt any like different than any other All Access Hour. No, it's one of those things where this is not a tournament like Indian Wells or probably like Canada was. It's a tournament where they haven't been here for a while and they're kind of fresh. They're not especially fresh right now. 
they're in the middle of the Dog Days of Summer U.S. Open Series thing, halfway done, but with New York up ahead. They're not their most relaxed in Cincinnati in terms of their career. There's a last major of the year coming up. There's a high stakes for that. If they don't do well at that one, their whole year is kind of over in terms of important results. So I think this is not, for interview purposes, necessarily the most chill place for them, and maybe that's why they're not all at their loosest. Fair. So because this week's episode was running a little bit short lengthwise, Courtney and I decided to put on our reporter hats and and intrepidly trek out to court number four at Cincinnati today on Wednesday. Courtney has a reporter hat on literally today. We are here watching. Courtney, describe to our listeners what you've just witnessed. Well, here, put it this way. What I just witnessed was we were standing out you know, out of the gate, waiting to be let in. To a packed court. Into a packed no court. No seats to be There's had. no seating, and no one's leaving. What I just witnessed is as we were standing outside of the court to be waiting to be let in, is a man roll up in a wheelchair, watch a few points, and actually wheel himself away. And make a large U-turn maneuver and say, I can't watch anymore. No, but, I can't. And what exactly couldn't he watch more of, Courtney? Be specific. He couldn't watch more of, I suppose, Monica Nicolescu's slice forehand. Some people say beautiful slice forehand. I would, I would say, say beautiful. I, I love say, it. I would say beautiful. It's art. I think it really is. We're, we've, tr- we've had to distance ourselves from the court a little bit. It was awkward because she's playing Caroline Wozniacki, and so the points are very, very long, and so you get to see a lot of slice of her hands. <laughs> she just hit another one, <laughs> and there's the hands, and it's it's pretty great. And uh, yeah, she does this leaping thing where she sort of leaps into it and yet hits it so softly. It, it's it's a, it's a piece. It's a work of art. It, it's it it's really balletic. Is. It is. It is. I think there's been a lot of great ballerinas from Romania over the years, and I think she's sort of the modern part of that lineage. But what's so funny is that, so this is out on court four, so which is... It's a backyard court. It here. is a backyard brawl court. This is where they put Puig Bouchard the other night. Um, but obviously it's Waz, and so Waz is a big name. And People uh, want to watch her, apparently. It's absolutely jam-packed. There are no free seats. People are standing on the upper rows of the co- adjacent court to look down yeah. to get a view of it. Turning their backs on Venus Williams to watch Monica Nicolescu. And it's incredible. Nicolescu is up a break. The first game of the entire match was a deuce game on Waz's serve that lasted over 10 minutes that resulted in a break for Nicolescu. She's been slicing and dicing and drawing Waz in with her ridiculous drop shots from every single angle. It is amazing. And Waz looks like she's about to just absolutely, like... Punch Nicolescu in the face. Exactly. And that's probably right. What we haven't talked and about Waz would not be the first. No. This is not... Not the first this to want that. Exactly. I don't know how much he's actually been hit, but yeah, she would not be the first to want it. Courtney, we haven't talked a whole lot about Monica Nicolescu on this on this podcast and I think that I know that I recommended uh, ATP specialist blogger Ricky Diamond when he was looking for a match to watch I said you gotta go watch Monica Nicolescu dude you've never seen anything like it what makes her so special the, the sort of special butterfly that she is on the tour. Which, I mean, it's different. It's a different game. I mean, to see somebody who is, I mean, she's like a top 50, top 40. She's number 43 in the world right WTA now. WTA player. She's won over $2 million in prize money in her career. Built a, a solid career for herself. Like, slice and dice, and not in a completely different way than like a Florian Meyer on the ATP side, but at least Meyer has Meyer some has stick and he, he can actually like hit outright winners. But to see her just basically slice and dice Waz to death, um, or at least attempt to. I, I couldn't miss this. There was absolutely no way. And actually, she's in here as a lucky loser. She lost in the final round of qualifying and yeah. took the spot of fellow Romanian Serana Cristea. Kept it all in the Romanian family. It's amazing because she 
hits these leaping forehands that are like floaty and yet she grunts. She hits these serves that are about literally about 55 miles per hour, a dive out a foot over the net, and then she's winning the majority of her service points today because Wozniak is not someone to attack her. I just think it's beautiful that, that tennis can, this is a valid execution of what we call tennis. This, 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 is, this actually it is within the rules. The tour allows this. This flourishes. I, I think that, I mean, Avdaz Racky's in the chair, and there have been times when she's looking to try to stifle yawns. It's probably fair to say. But it's just been awesome. And it's just kind of funny to see Nicolescu basically completely take this crowd out of it. They want so badly to, like, applaud Caroline Wozniacki and to get into the match. She's dating that golfer fellow, you know. Exactly. And she has completely put a sleeper hold on this crowd and with every slice forehand cut out the hearts and souls of all these these loyal Mason tennis fans. Played them with loopy slices. It's incredible. It's it's what she's doing. I have no idea she's going to win this match. I think that physically what she's had to work really hard to kind of keep this break lead and you know I wouldn't be surprised if Waz wins this in three but no. um, it's been fun to watch so far we came running out here we were like we need to go be there in person I need to have witnessed this and we just saw Bobby Chintapali as well here she's so here everyone here. everyone is here if you know anything about tennis and clearly these fans do they really there is like a line literally about 30 people waiting to get into this court on every corner entrance so good on you WTA good on you Monica Nicolescu and you good luck to you, Caroline Wozniacki. Good luck to everyone involved in this. May, may, may God have mercy on everything involved in what we've just seen. So we're going to talk about the outro song again briefly. <laughs> Courtney has been regaling me with a lot of stuff about women's soccer lately. <laughs> and Much Canada. to Ben's chagrin. I put up with it, kind of. have been talking about Canada a lot this week. And for our musical outro, Courtney, you had an interesting story for me about the overlap of Canada music and women's soccer. So please tell me about how those three things intersect. Yeah, so there's a video on YouTube of the Canadian, the w- Canadian women's soccer team, the national team, which is quite good. And, they won know, a bronze medal, They won a bronze medal at the London Olympics, controversially, because they thought they should have won and beat the States and got a shot at the gold medal. But there's a video of their kind of pre-match routine, I believe it's at the Olympics, where they kind of all get into a circle, and they put their arms around each other, and they sway back and forth, and they sing Celine Dion's Power of Love. That is how they get amped up for their matches, and that is so Canadian. Isn't that such a Jock Jams kind of track, though, that totes, song? Totes. Canadian Jock Jam, featuring, featuring Celine Dion and Anne Murray. Sure. Yeah. Why not? It's about right. Yeah. So, it's amusing. There you go. Enjoy that, folks, and we'll see you at the end of the week in Mason with our bellies full of chili and Applebee's food. And That's Ben. He actually ate dinner at Applebee's tonight, and I did not. Yeah, she's, she's a coward. <laughs> we'll see you guys later. The feeling-